Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Episode 47 is a conversation with Shen Chu, National Development Director at Investa Property Group and co-founder at International Intelligent Buildings Organization, a nonprofit that has created the Intelligent Building Index. We talked about Investa's smart buildings program, including how they approach technology on new buildings and existing ones. Finally, Shen explained the IB Index and the approach behind it, including how it differs from other rating systems out there. This was super insightful from someone who's living smart buildings every day. So please enjoy Nexus Podcast episode 47. All right, Shen, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself for us? Thanks, James. Thanks for inviting me along. Um, so my name is Shen Chu. I'm the National Development Director for a company called Investor here in Australia. Uh, Investor, until recent times, was probably the most recognized commercial-only real estate uh, business in terms of developing, owning, and then managing commercial real estate. Um, but a couple of years ago, Oxford Properties actually bought 50% of our business, and that's diversified us into other sectors like uh, build-to-rent or multifamily, uh, as you would know, over in the US. Um, cool. Cool. And and can you take us through your background? Like you said, how long have you been at Investor and what did you do before that? So, yeah, so I graduated um, as a structural engineer. Uh, practiced for many years as a structural engineer and, and then slowly moved out of that into uh, running sort of residential developments and then into commercial developments. I, I joined Investor about eight years ago and uh, interesting time because it was just after the sort of GFC sort of uh, uh, hit and we were all coming out of that. And my background in developments uh, since then has really been helping invest on a national basis, uh, develop a pipeline of projects, primarily commercial office buildings. And in this smart building space, uh, really working on that early formulation of a strategy uh, and a roadmap to how we were going to make our buildings smarter, you know, and, and why we were trying to make them smarter and what that actually meant in terms of the technology usages and the like. Okay. You might be the first structural slash civil engineer we've had on the podcast so far. So that's uh, <laughs> normally, that's, normally we're pretty boring and we sit in the background with calculators <laughs> and pocket pens. And like, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also, I was stalking you and it sounds like you were, you were or are a member of a ski patrol team somewhere. You're, it sounds like you're an avid, avid skier. Yes. Yes. So, um, so when I came back to Australia, having skied every year from the age of about 18 or 19 uh, into my 30s, I, um, I, I found that Australia doesn't really have great skiing. Okay. <laughs> and it's a long way to travel from Australia to the majority of places, especially with a lot of my friends uh, overseas in, in the UK and the like. I worked in the UK for about 10 years as a structural engineer. Okay. And um, you can just catch a Eurostar or you can fly over to the Alps and you can ski, you know, or, or, or even head over to the US. But so I'm in Australia and I'm trying to work out what to do. And one of my colleagues uh, just happened to be on the ski patrol uh, at our mountains. Uh, and he said, you should come along. You know, he said, what you'll find is you'll find a good group of people, but they also are all very 
high level skiers, snowboarders, and um, because they have to be at a good level to be able to be competent enough to be able to rescue somebody in any condition. Right. Um, and he said, so A, you'll be around good skiers because the majority of Australians are not skiers. And, and then B, you'll have, you know, an opportunity to just get out there for a couple of weeks a year and ski and keep your, keep your eye in. And so I joined the ski patrol, but, um, you know, my sort of claim to fame amongst my friends is I've, I've had the biggest ski accident of all of them, even though I'm the guy with all the, uh, the qualifications as a <laughs> ski patroller and first aid rescue and the like. And I've done lots of personal rescues of people, not even the ones that I had to do as a patroller and, and mountain rescue. I actually have had to look after a number of friends who've broken things and fractured things and, you know, making sure that they're comfortable and safe getting down the mountain. I had to do it to myself. Um, and, and I was in the US and uh, stupidly skied into a tree uh, off piece or snowboarded into a tree off piece and then I had to, you know, get myself down the mountain and uh, safely back stuck. It meant I was stuck in hospital for about three months um, wow. in the US uh, with a collapsed lung recovering. So that wasn't a great thing to happen. Yeah. How, how did you get down the mountain with a collapsed lung? How did that happen? So... Uh, <laughs> When, when you do any sort of advanced first aid, you, you learn all things around shock and you learn all these things around adrenaline. And, uh, you know, so, so the first thing you do is, um, you know, having uh, known that I've seriously impaled myself, I did you know, uh, a whole bunch of scans on myself to check that I, hadn't, I wasn't concussed, I wasn't bleeding, uh, you know, I hadn't hurt my head and stuff coming out of my ears, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I was in extreme pain and I started to uh, shiver and sweat. And I realized that I was going into shock, but I was in a location that was really hard for someone to either find me or rescue me. So I did what you have to do, which is I sucked it up and uh, crawled out of the hole I was in, got back up uh, in, in a lot of pain. I have to say, I, I, uh, I've never been in so much pain and I just limped my way down the mountain on the board. In many ways, better I was on the board because both my feet were strapped in and I mm -hmm. just held one edge and pretty much leafed all the way down the mountain. Mm -hmm. You know, it was not the prettiest, but um, I got there. So anyway, but, you know, it's an interesting story, the, the, the ski thing, because that time off from work, three months pretty much in a hospital bed or in a hotel room gave me a lot of thinking time a lot of time to uh, reflect on things that were important, things that I wanted to understand more. It's like, you know, it's like going on a course for three months. I, I just started reading up and studying um, things that I was interested in that actually became even more valuable. I didn't realize when I came back to work uh, because I was able to align some of my technology learnings, thinking through that period and consolidating of those ideas into ways I could actually implement that in, in my job, you know, in the development space. Really cool. Really cool. Yeah. <laughs> really cool. Really scary. <laughs> really cool the way you turned it around. Yeah. I have two stories real quick to add on to that. So my claim to fame from an injury standpoint when snowboarding is that I, the second day I ever snowboarded, the first day I took a full day lesson. So that was great. I was riding blues the, you know, the first day I was ever on a board. Wow. The second day I showed up and hit a patch of ice on the first run, got off the lift. <laughs> first time without a ski instructor, got off the lift, turned, didn't fall off the lift, which I was super happy about, hit a patch of ice at the top of the run, not even not even going on the run yet, and broke my wrist. That was that's my claim <laughs> for <laughs> there, uh, there were more people who break their wrists snowboarding going through the car park than they are on the mountain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, snowboarders are wrists and skiers are thumbs and uh, ACLs. Yep. 
Yep. And so now I have two wrist guards that I wear religiously. And if I forget them, I won't go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm actually going, I'm actually snowboarding tomorrow. We got a couple of weeks left oh, really? in our season. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. And the other, the other story I was going to say was I, I have this like really strong belief that not enough people take sabbaticals. Um, yeah. And you had a forced, a little bit of a forced sabbatical, yeah. but I mean, that was the impetus for Nexus is I, I had a really tough job and I quit that job, you know, sold my shares in the company I was in. And I just decided to take six weeks off and mm. Nexus came not, not long after that. And so I do, I do feel like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years into your career and more, like we need this time yeah. off. And it's just super helpful to even just like get more general knowledge, take courses, do things like that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. people that are listening, uh, I, I suggest if you're thinking about it, just go do it anyway i would agree after every 10 years seven years you do need a refresh yeah. you need a reason to be passionate about what you're doing next say it's seven years to do one project you know that's what it takes for development it can take up to seven years to do one project you need a reason to refresh to relearn to reskill you know to understand what's new because you've been so busy entrenched in what you're doing so yeah i agree with you completely absolutely well, let's dive into it so i want to start with my favorite question which is yep. Why is technology adoption and buildings so far behind, in, in your opinion? And we've had a lot of great answers, but I love the fact that we get something different pretty much every time. So I'm excited about mm, your perspective. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I, I think um, historically, you know, bricks and mortar has always been a very slow moving sort of industry, construction at least. It's a slow moving industry. Um, and, and it's probably well recognized that the construction industry is probably one of the slowest. It's, it, there's a lot of people involved. Uh, a lot of unions involved and changing things, especially with automation and technology, usually implies um, reducing people to produce, you know, efficiencies in automation. And so there's a direct correlation to, you know, people's jobs where it's not, they're not incentivized in many ways to do that. It also comes back to learnings as technology gets more complicated, as things get more complicated and specialized, you need more training to understand those. So then your normal person who's been doing it for 20 years, 15 years, it's very difficult for them to skill up. You know, it's easy to say, oh, everyone has to skill up, but it's sometimes you haven't necessarily come from a background where skilling up is, is on the radar. What do you do? How do you reskill? How do you find a new job? Um, so you're not incentivized to use those tools. You're, everyone's a creature of habit and you just want to do what you normally do. Uh, in construction property is a, quite a slow moving beast historically. And then you've also got people whose business streams are fully invested in a way of doing things. Yep. They're not, uh, they don't want to butcher you know, and take away from their current income stream, even if they believe that the new idea will give them future earnings. So they don't want to disrupt themselves. They will slowly transition across. Um, and so it, it's no different than hydrogen batteries versus uh, diesel fuel. Uh, the, the big players are not incentivized to stop selling diesel until they are have a big enough monopoly to equal their monetary stream from hydrogen. Unless governments legislate something, uh, it's, it's a very slow um, move. So, you know, not a great holistic answer there, but I'd say that there's, I guess, too many pieces in the puzzle. It's a very complex space. Uh, there probably isn't enough advocates at a decision-making level where, because it's complex, why would a investment director or a development director or an investor want to understand the myriad of esoteric pieces when they just want some simple 
reasons. Uh, and in many ways, government, I think, is the driver for a lot of the changes because government sets legislative policy and then others will have to follow versus will choose to follow. So market leaders will always follow, will always do their own thing and they'll make some wins. But usually it will take sort of a, a larger body and that's usually government or it takes a large social body to actually push that move. Mm -hmm. uh, as has been done with sustainability, uh, climate change, that is a social move. Um, but technology, people aren't really seeing the rationale yet. So. Cool. And I think as we explore Investa, a couple of those themes will pop up for sure in a minute. Uh, so, so can you explain what is Investa again and and maybe talk a little bit about your portfolio that you're involved in in Australia? Yeah. So um, Investa's original or main mandate for, for from its formulation was commercial office buildings and owning, uh, managing those buildings as well as developing new buildings to put into the asset pool uh, around $13 billion worth of office buildings is our main pool. And if I just talk about that rather than talking about the, the recent change yeah. um, where we started looking into build to rent, then I can focus more in on um, you know where our new pipeline of development buildings are coming from. Okay. Um, and and it's, it's looking at you know brownfield sites. Um, there's rarely greenfield sites that we're looking at. Greenfield being a brand new site in the suburbs, we're looking generally in core CBD areas hmm. for high-rise office buildings. Uh, that's our kind of main focus of the portfolio. Um, and that allows us, I guess, in those sort of buildings to look at higher-end tenants, professional services tenants, lawyers, uh, bankers, et cetera. And then what are their drivers? What are their needs? So that our office buildings can service that to either attract new tenants um, who are willing to pay the right uh, rent to make it a feasible building or uh, retain tenants who are staying in there and looking at potentially moving uh, to another building, but saying, well, actually, I can't get what you guys are offering us. Um, so that's kind of the basis, I guess, or the hypothesis of our office building offer to be the best um, office building provider in the market. Okay. And how many buildings do you have uh, under management? Uh, we've probably got... Yeah, so it's just Australia. Years ago, uh, an ex-CEO decided that it wasn't worth us owning buildings overseas because we really didn't understand the market or, you know, the the, the clientele. Okay. Um, so we cent centralized to Australia in sort of the mid-2000s, um, and we've got probably about 40 buildings in the portfolio now. Um, okay. I should know the number of square meters, but um, it keeps changing with new development pipeline. We've got, you know, 3 billion of development pipeline coming out of the ground at the moment, uh, which means that the number just keeps on changing. Okay. Cool. Well, I want to talk to you about, so you're building new buildings, you have existing buildings as well. So I wanted to totally nerd out about your philosophy on new and existing, but let's start with like the overall program. The, yep. like, what are you guys trying to accomplish from a smart building technology standpoint? And what's the strategy that you've put in place to kind of guide how those new and existing buildings end up happening? Yeah, so um, probably I'll rewind that a little bit to when I joined Investor about eight years ago. Yeah. There wasn't really a smart building program eight years ago when I joined the business. Uh, smart buildings wasn't even a term that anyone was really using probably eight years ago. In that time, as we were evolving our strategy to just deliver quality buildings that tenants would want to use, that long-term our investors would always get a solid return from. Um, mm -hmm. And let's say that buildings last around 50 years, because what we were finding was uh, two of the buildings that I was immediately given to deliver 
uh, were about 50 years old. They were both built in the 1970s or late 60s. And they were reaching that point where the form of the building, uh, maybe the layout of the columns, the quality of the, the glass, even the waterproofing around the facade was just falling apart and it was impossible hmm. to just renovate to get value. So we were able to look at the buildings and say, okay, it's about 50 years old. Let's knock them down. What can we build? Um, so the strategy then is purely around quality assets in CBD locations to attract tenants and what are tenants interested in. So we knew that sustainability was a big goal mm. uh, for tenants, uh, for our government has mandated a minimum sustainability standard of the building for any of the government tenants. And no different than probably where you are, government tenants, public sector tenants are the biggest tenants of the market, not private sector tenants. And so everybody is now incentivized to hit a minimum sustainable target. We were, we were finding that there was a drive towards things like amenities. People are looking at healthier culture, cycling to work, maybe trying to get rid of cars, uh, healthy means going to gyms. So now what are the amenities in the building or around the building that are relevant? Uh, do you need uh, retail, food and beverage? Yes. Coffee is huge over here. Everybody has their own personal favorite coffee and they make it themselves. Um, the end of trip or end of journey facilities where you rack your bike, you have a locker, you have almost like a country club style shower facility with towel service and the like. Um, People were looking at in the gyms in the building or, or flexible, not flexible space in the co-working side, but, you know, flexible space that people could have breakout space in, hmm. you know, lobby cafes and the like, uh, where you would have meetings or little business centers where people could get away from their desks. So some of those were key themes. And then in that space, we were starting to hear things around, I guess, specifically property technology that would enable some of those to function better hmm. or property technology that was um, helping you to better run your building and keep the costs of running the buildings down, both for the owners, but also for the tenants, because some of our lease structures mean that we pass through a lot of those communal costs to the tenant. So, you know, the, again, it's a commercial thing where, um, and not many people talk about it, but if you look at the detail of a lease, it explains to you what actually is driving the tenant's reason to come to you, not just the rent, it's a whole bunch of other things, including um, how much the building and how efficiently the building runs because that gets charged back to the tenant. Hmm. Um, and then we were looking at technologies like, um, so I've, yeah, I've gone through uh, efficiency, I've gone through some of the tenant engagement elements um, uh, and then things that were actually driving. Um, oh, and the last one was we were hearing from the UK that they brought uh, all the BIM standards into play. So they were saying that potentially could this come to Australia where the government mandates that every building needs to have a 3D model, every new building has to have a 3D model that will actually have a end-to-end -end asset list, uh, structured typology and 3D visualization, uh, not just so that your facilities team have access to good latest uh, documentation, but so that in future there's solid data against every building. Um, it also improves planning and construction efficiencies to make sure you, there's less wastage on site because what's that phrase, uh, draw twice, cut once. Yeah. Um, and we know that when the builders are building even mechanical pipe work, they assume 10, 15% wastage because they know when they get on site that they will bump into plumbing, structure, et cetera, which in, in the way. Um, so they have to assume they're going to have to cut and run flexible pipes to different places. If you can pre-plan all of that, you can come to site 
either knowing and installing without worrying about clashes, or you can prefabricate modules and then bring those to sites. So prefabrication was one of those big drivers. So we understood all of that was coming. Um, now it's impossible when you're running a development to think of a strategy that involves all those random pieces. But what you do is you, you start thinking, okay, I've got to keep that in mind at every step of the design process, concept process, the feasibility process, I need to allow a bit of money. I need to make sure the designers are being given a brief to push tell us, give us an idea of what's happening in the market. And then as we get sign-offs at different levels, we've ensured that everyone's brief to say, this is our goal. These are sustainable goals. These are our amenity goals, our design goals. These are our spatial sort of, you know, goals. And then this is our technology goals. And even then, no one was talking about property technology. No one really acknowledged that building services are your property technology. They just started talking about prop tech like it was a different bunch of technologies and actually it's just a, a, a different term for the same thing that we were doing all the time right right what do you mean by building services in that context um hvac lighting yeah. vertical transport access control uh security all of the many subsystems that would run a building we, we call them i guess building services um but okay. you know even then eight years ago we had iot we just didn't have it in the way that we have it now. We didn't have as much, I guess, um, well, we still had issues with, uh, I think we're probably still using the the blue cables, the the Cat Cat 5 cables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so you did those two developments originally, and then how, how have things changed since then? I'm sure they've changed a yeah, lot. Yeah, so what was interesting about the two developments were they were running about a year apart. So we had a, uh, we call it an A grade building um, and our, our grade goes uh, C, D, D, C, B, A, and then premium. And in the cities, generally you only build A grade and premium grade buildings. So we had an A grade building running and it was a good time to formulate all of these ideas and actually implement strategies around delivering what we were looking for, that best building. Uh, but through that process, as, as consultants were bringing to us more of these technologies, we were trying to implement probably the first virtual 3D model all the way through to 5D BIM um, or even beyond that 6D BIM, I think we were talking about back then. Um, On the second project, what was great was everything we didn't do right or everything we were able to use hindsight on, we were able to implement in the second building. And the second building was a premium grade building, double the size of the first building. Um, And so we were able to take all the learnings and that became probably our, what's that word? our landmark building for smart buildings. Um, And things have changed massively through that process of delivering those buildings. Um, We went through design. We started getting consultants advising us what was happening. We're starting to see value in some of these new technologies around spatial utilization, around building apps, around um, IEQ. Well, Well rating came out during that period in the the mid sort of 2015-16. And we had to adapt very quickly to a new rating system that was driving health and well-being, which we knew was important to our tenants or was important to tenants to come. And again, setting up a building over a seven-year development window where you're guessing what the next 25 years will look like. Uh, You know, you're lucky to be able to guess what what you're doing next week. But, you know, you're trying to find this, what will the building be like? What am I specifying on day one? How do I keep a broader you know, almost umbrella strategy that means that in five years when the building is developed, even though I've specified technology, amenities, uh, design five years before, and it's locked and loaded, that in five years time, I'm not immediately out of date. How do I ensure that? And so whereas design, you can, I guess it's well established, the practices of good quality design will stand the test of time. 
some of these technologies uh, were so new that we were trying to not in the first building we did a number of I'd call them point solutions okay we specified a number of like a lighting technology um, we were very early days with the mobile credentials on our access control um, we put in uh, a number of different I guess analytic tools to look at energy management and, and the like on our BMS um, okay. and we were just guessing we were going directly to vendors we were finding products we thought were worth a go and then we were putting them into the building. Um, on the second building, we realized actually, A, across the portfolio, that's not scalable. Hmm. You, you, need, you need a, 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 definitely need a strategy that gives you an end-to-end, plus how do I scale that across our portfolio? Okay. Um, you need to avoid point solutions. You need really more of an umbrella strategy that allows you to plug solutions in when you want and pull them out. The same issue around why it's difficult having a single BMS provider who provides every single other device, security and access control and the like, to then find that when you want to change them out, you need to change every device. You can't just change out the BMS. You've got to change every single sensor that they connect to um, because they're all talking to each other in in, in an ecosystem. Uh, It's, I guess, it's the Apple versus other ecosystem sort of question. And so we, we then started pairing back from point solutions and then looking at a much more holistic, okay, let's set up an ecosystem. Let's set up okay. a client-based ecosystem that allows us with, with some high-level principles. Everybody must be able to plug and play into our ecosystem, which means there are data protocols and ontologies, you know, typologies that need to be agreed. Uh, the, the consultants are better at specifying that, but we need to make sure that at least three vendors that can supply to that requirement from mm. the market. Then we can go to tender and we can make sure there's always competitive tender there's always competitive product. Those products, we stand, still need to make sure that they have some, I guess, history. You, the last thing you want is something which is a critical system, failing because you've got a one-year, two-year startup, which might have the best system ever, but they go under. Who's going to support your ongoing uh, use of that system? So there's certain critical systems that we need. And we do need uh, vendor safety, maturity, uh, you know, tried and tested. And then there are other um, I guess, more interesting, modern, cutting-edge solutions that, mm-hmm. that might um, be of value. The other thing that is really different about every country is that in Australia, we do something called a warm shell fit-out, where we speculatively fit out the inside of our office buildings with ceilings, um, floor-by-floor services, you know, the layout of the pipework, um, lighting, et cetera, and we put carpets down. Um, okay. In, in America, you do a cold shell fit out where mm-hmm. you stop a lot of those in the core and then you leave it to the tenant to fit out the ceilings, the floors, et cetera. And the, the interesting difference in that is that in Australia, we have to think about what the tenant might want in their floor. So when we're offering them a floor plate, we might think about sensors in the ceiling for movement tracking mm-hmm. or for IEQ sensoring without knowing their final fit out. And we have to take a punt on that. And we have to invest money in that uh, upfront. And so we need to understand what we're putting in, which is why it's even more important that we have, I guess, this umbrella strategy of, you know, building an ecosystem and letting these things plug in. So if the tenant then says to us, actually, I don't like that. I've got my own visitor management, visitor registration. I've got my own, uh, you know, people tracking utilization or IEQ censoring or, or the like or room booking system. Mm-hmm. How do I plug my system into yours? You know, how do I get a credit for that? How do you install it for me before I even come to the building? Um, whereas in America, you can pretty much stop and say, this is my line. 
Yeah. And then you, Mr. Tenant, you do everything inside the building, which then drives different solutions because a tenant will go for a point solution because they're only doing it for their one tenancy. We are thinking about how do we do it across 40 buildings, you know, in a million square meters or, you know, 10 million square foot of, of space. We need to have you know, that broader strategy. Anyway, Absolutely. that was a really mixed answer with no clear terms. <laughs> no, I actually have a couple of questions. So we, you mentioned how the first building ha- like primarily had point solutions and you went away from that. So I want to key in on that because I think at least from the projects I've worked on and I think the general status of the states at least, and I'm not going to speak for the rest of the world, is that that's kind of the state of the art a little bit uh, is, is mm-hmm. point solutions everywhere. And that's like a lot of people's definition of smart buildings. And so, mm. I, I mean, obviously not listeners of this podcast, of course, um, but, <laughs> uh, but I want to hear from you, like why don't point solutions work from that holistic portfolio perspective? I think, um, you know, people will use the phrase uh, single source of truth and uh, single lens dashboards Mm -hmm. where you can see how all your buildings are operating across your whole portfolio rather than just one building. And uh, what we found was every time we engaged a vendor directly, they didn't just give us their technology solution. They gave us their own online cloud portal and they gave us their dashboard. And if you think about how difficult it is to set up a startup, if you imagine, you know, you've got these great technical guys who are maybe going to build hardware or software, and then they have to then become designers because they need to build a dashboard that speaks to all clients as if it's everything. And the same problem we have with a BMS and a, you know, lots of subsystems with their own head ends and their own engineering pages is that. We've got all of these disparate systems which have their own dashboards and their own representation of information. And then every time you go to a brand new vendor, you get a different version of that. We all want, like it or not, we want Windows interface. We want icons. We want the Adobe suite. We want the Microsoft suite. That's why these things are so popular because everyone knows no matter where they go, they get the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so within a business at least, even though we may not be able to say that for every different business, within a business, we're going to want our facilities managers, our operational teams, our property managers, you know, our developers to look at the same format, the same layout, the same presentation of information in the same way, uh, because we can make better cognitive decisions if we're not spending all our time working out what we don't know. It's all in the same place. It becomes part of our workflow. So point solutions are difficult, not just because they often run with different data protocols and proprietary you know, licensing agreements and costs, um, plus their own web server and cloud costs, as well as their, their dashboards. You know, all of those are disparate and they, they need to come into one system. So what we really want is one ecosystem, one pane, uh, one view. And yes, you might have to jump out to do the engineering, but in terms of what most of our operators use, while it's arguably a alarm respond system we're going to always want a singular dashboard and you know i often talk about when i want uh, information i need three types of information i need the information that is at the technical level because the consultants the designers the builders might need that i need information at my level where my team as a developer sees it but we're one level removed we don't want to see all of the detail detail we want to see a summary of that detail and then i need another version And that's the version for the board and the investors. And they really don't want to see more than one or two items on there. And it's usually cost-related or key risk-related. 
Um, you know, and so those different versions means that if I get a dashboard from this vendor on all these disparate systems, I have too much information and I, someone has to dissect it and someone has to interpret it and someone has to pull it all together. So we went away from point solutions, you know, primarily because we have a portfolio. And once you have a portfolio, you need to think about the bigger picture of new buildings, consistency of approach for all of those buildings and consistency of approach down to every existing building because 95% of our portfolio is existing buildings. And, and you're going to need consistency across those. Leads to a whole new conversation around the fact that every single one of our buildings has a different BMS anyway and, and has exactly that problem. But at yeah. least as a strategy, that is the right, that is a better strategy and a, the right approach for growth and for sustainability than it is to have a whole bunch of point solutions. Totally. I love that. And anyone who's taking my course right now is probably smiling listening to you say that. We have a whole video that, and I'll put the slide in the show notes, um, that you basically just described perfectly. And so that's why I was, you, you can see me smiling, but everyone else probably can't. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the state of a lot of different portfolios right now. So cool. So you mentioned the board and, and kind of boiling things up for them. I wanted to ask from a program perspective, Hmm. What's the business case here for this smart building program within within Investa for for new and existing? Um, yeah, so it, like I'd love to be able to say even now after an eight year sort of delivery process for for two of our you know kind of key buildings um, with a lot of technology that we had a very clear ROI on all of our returns based on the investment we've made with the technologies. Some of those we were lucky in tendering to the market, we were able to get um, the, the market to actually not price in any more cost because some of it was just good practice. Hmm. So say some of the creation of um, ontologies and typologies and actually tracking data, pulling it together into you know asset models, pulling it together into three-dimensional models. Some of that didn't, doesn't cost you any more money because that is good practice and it helps uh, the builder. Um, but in terms of ROI, we've always struggled. We are only now one or two years into live operational buildings, pulling together all of the different um, use cases that prove up that there's value in the technology that we put together. Um, we don't have a simple metric that says, if you do X, you will get 25% saving on Y, thus there is a return of this dollars. Uh, we, we don't have that simple ROI. What, we, what we're finding though is anecdotally, as interviews I've had with facilities managers, uh, with property managers, with builders, with vendors, that they are saying, when we plug in a analytics program, it is easier to access your data and it will cost you less than it would if you gave us a traditional building where the BMS points are done by one supplier, there's another supplier running, you know, your lift points, your, your HVAC points, your access control points and your security. They're saying that is cheaper, we can reduce the cost by you know, initially, let's say 25% off the top and then slowly even better um, because they can access the information more easily. We are having engagement discussions with tenants where they are saying, look, this is great. This app that you've given us that gives us control of our lockers, parking, access, you know, straight to our door, plus all the community information means during COVID, we were able to keep engagement with staff at home through your app because they were already using it. Um, obviously, we track using our analytics against the use of the app, the uh, number of sign-ins against the number of access cards that have actually been given to people in the building. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that information comes back from 
office managers for tenants, from tenants directly writing in about different events, different functions, uh, different use cases that they've actually enjoyed. And so we're collecting all of that in, a, in just a big repository of you know, wins and what we could do better. So I think this is an iterative process. Uh, going up to the board, one of the things which is difficult for existing buildings and possibly easier for new developments is high investment in uh, technologies and where we've gone is these use cases tell us where the real value is sitting, yeah. uh, the alignment of data, the, the savings in outgoings for lease and for tenants, the, the, the improvement in the, the day job or workflow or responsiveness of our operations teams for problems that occur, uh, our ability to almost be more proactive in identifying a problem before it turns into a failure or, or a fault or a problem that's going to happen, uh, tuning the building. Those sorts of cases, those use cases are being pulled out, understanding the alignment of access control data with lift data, with you know HVAC data is a good one to give us a bit more insight into people in the building and how the building is operating to deal with people when they're in the building. Um, and now our rollout is, is, is taking those steps into existing buildings because we know it's hard to invest uh, large sums of money in existing CapEx programs. Uh, investors and the board rarely give approval for significant sums of money until something is broken. So having those use cases shows that it's worth inv investing in keeping those buildings as, as close to what tenants want as possible by introducing, and in our case, mobile credentials on access control is going to be a big one going forward. Um, having the ability to have a, a, a cross-portfolio building app that no matter what building you go to within our portfolio, given that a lot of our tenants are in multiple buildings in different states, they can just walk into another building, have the same app activate and you know, get access control. You can't do that unless you have a ubiquitous system across all of those buildings. You can't have a whole bunch of different access control points because uh, that's why we all end up with uh, those white access cards, we end up with five. So every, as a national development director, I, I travel between three or four states, you know, regularly, or I did before COVID. Uh, I have four or five of those cards sitting in my bag and I just have to, I write on them the building and then I go and I tap them in each building to get in. <laughs> now that's that's just not, that we can do better. And that's one of the things we, we know we want to do better. So that's one of the items. And then having, I guess, open protocols and a central network uh, you know, an integrated network, comms network across the whole building. So that irrespective of, we want to plug and play. I mean, that's a great term that I guess um, Microsoft came up with years ago, that plug and play concept. If a BMS provider is no longer uh, meeting their KPIs or, or, or maybe it's out of date or we want to update it, we can plug them out, pull them out and we can plug someone else in. That's what we need. And the only way to do that is an integrated communications network across and then, and then clear standards around, you know, protocols, data protocols. Uh, and what people can access and what they can't, who owns the data, and then having a data lake, you know, hopefully not a data swamp strategy where you actually pull all that data in a, you know, sequenced way. Um, I still think we should have structured data. I hear the AI and ML guy saying you don't need structured data. Unstructured is fine because we can get into it. I, I'm, it's like filing your emails. It's still easier if you structure it and think mm -hmm. about structuring it than just, just throwing all everything in one place and hoping you can search for it later on. Yeah, totally. I agree. Um, so it sounds like the business case is different for new versus existing, which makes total sense. Yep. So on the new side, mm -hmm. it's it's kind of fighting with the incumbents around, not fighting, that's the wrong word, but fighting with the incumbents on 
getting it down to what it would be without the technology. Um, and then even if it costs more, it sounds like you're making the decision that this is what our, our tenants want. This is what our clients yeah, want. Yeah, and that's always the case. Yeah, absolutely. That's always the case with the majority of our, um, I guess, drivers like sustainability, amenities, um, design, et cetera. You can only guess what the market is going to pay you back for. You take your most educated guess. Uh, you sound out the market. You talk to your tenants. You get feedback. You watch what's going on with trends and topics. Um, but these are all still guesses. There's no hard metric around most of these benefits for tenant. And prop technology is, is no different than that. It's probably about, we think there's a good 3 to 5% in a truly integrated technology stack in a new building mm-hmm. of construction cost. You'll yeah. probably add three to five percent if you if you want to do a, a really integrated technology stack. But that's you know that's doing everything. You can yeah. pair that back to the, the 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 ICNs, which are now you know probably ubiquitous. Everybody's delivering an ICN in the new buildings, um, and then it's about putting together the right sort of I guess performance requirements around data standards yeah. um, and the like. Okay. How about on the existing buildings? How do you think about you have like your you've defined out your standards of your smart building program, and then you have what do you say thirty eight existing buildings that are in like varying degrees of disarray? I'm sure (laughs) (laughs) from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. We well, it's a slow mover. Most of those buildings are just making sure that they they have a good EMS um, energy management system and make sure that they've got an analytics provider. We've now got a national provider. Um, actually doing analytics across all of our buildings, helping to optimize, helping to look for, you know, fault detection, et cetera, as well as, you know, analytics for optimization uh, and tuning the building to run more efficiently. We have uh, a national provider for that, and that is allowing the buildings to at least be as effective and as efficient with the equipment and devices they have. Uh, and then we've got a, a parallel program that's running to making sure everything, every building has got a, you know, a, a, an integrated comms network setting itself up for the future. Um, and then our other strategy, you know, in tiers of importance is then making sure that those buildings have certain minimum data drags, which are possible. One of them is from the BMS that we need to be able to pull all the data and whatever data is available, whatever data we've got within our, I guess, our BMS um, the licensing agreement to pull and then put, put into our data lake. And the last part is we believe there's a, a heavy alignment of the people movement and people usage of the building. So access control through both doors as well as lifts is where we're getting the the other alignment of information, uh, short of putting maybe people counters, which again can be difficult because it shows you people in the lobby, but not necessarily people going up to their floor, whereas lifts do. And we have, in Australia, we pretty much all have destination control lifts, which means that everybody who goes to a floor will click a button. Uh, no one will realistically go stand behind someone else and go, oh, you're already going to level seven. I'll get in the lift with you because they won't know they're going to level seven because it'll just be lift C. And they'll go, oh, okay. where's lift C going? I have no idea. So they have to press the button. So the, 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 the collection of the data of pressing the button, the floor that that person is going to gives us good insight into the people moving into tenancies. Within that tenancy, we can then get the data of the performance of systems within that floor in terms of energy usage, lighting, uh, HVAC, et cetera. And then we can align that to how do we optimize the space for that tenant uh, based on usage. Um, so we're, we're, we're finding that sort of, I call it access control is one of the key pieces that talking to the lift guys and, uh, and, and then making sure that we have ability to access the data from the BMS. And that's our kind of core strategy on existing buildings at the moment. 
Totally. And, uh, and one of our listeners, Joe, is going to kill me if I don't ask you this. How do you fund that for an existing building when you have an existing investment, right? That, you know, there's certain mm. expectations around operating costs and capital costs for your investors. Um, I don't know, a lot of business cases and really carefully. Um, <laughs> part of it is, is an education. Let, let's say that the, the board the investors, they're, they're not experts in this space and they're not meant to be. They are reliant on us as experts and us as the building owners and managers to advise them of where things are going to make, uh, is going to find, we're going to find the delta, where we're going to find the difference and going to help them. Um, and traditionally, you might say, well, until you prove up an ROI, I'm not going to spend any money. That might work for privates privates who, who the money is coming out of their own pocket. But in, in, you know, institutional investors are a little bit more uh, broader in, in their, their, their recognition of you know, trends and topics that will actually make a, a difference to them. So um, then they're not there to squeeze every dollar. There is always a CapEx program that has to be there, usually based on maintenance, usually based on longevity of equipment. Uh, and that CapEx program is usually set up for building um, and, and runs for you know, 10, 20 years. And you're constantly chipping away at that. Uh, tenant demands, tenant vacancies, as tenants leave, sometimes you need to reposition the building, you need to do something new. Um, so all of those come into the piece for the business case. It talks about how the building's performing, how it's performing against its peers or, or even the rest of the portfolio. Um, do we need to do better? And then why do we need to do better? And what areas do we need to do better? Uh, and then that becomes a little bit more uh, qualitative around trends and topics, feedback from uh, agents, feedback from other tenants, survey information, and I guess successes in other buildings that we've had. And then saying, and then, and then a slow education about why some of these technologies are valuable. Absolutely. Very cool. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together, and they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. I want to circle back to the, the buildings you're developing in just a second, but on the existing buildings, only the last question I had was how, how do you guys think about engaging the operations teams? You mentioned analytics. So one of the biggest mm -hmm. things for me is if, if I'm a, if I'm running a building, right. And you, you've mentioned all these different software systems tools. I have to log into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So many different, so many different tools, so many different things going on. How do you get them to engage in an analytics program? Um, and how have you kind of thought about rolling that out and, and getting stuff to actually get yeah. fixed? So, so yeah, I, I think uh, the first time as, a, as an analogy, uh, the first time we moved offices in our, in our business, we hired a full-time change manager. And I remember saying, well, what, what do we need a change manager for? We're, we're moving from an office where we've got desks and we've got computers to another office with desks and computers. Why do we need a change manager? And they sent me on a course. They said, obviously, you need some edification, Jen, um, <laughs> because people, um, there are three types of people. There are people who embrace the change. 
they love the change. They, they see the positives, the half glass full of all of the, you know, cleanliness, new, shiny, whatever, new location, et cetera. And they all embrace that change. They're advocates. So you don't need to convince them. You just need to keep them informed of the journey. And then you've got the people in the, uh, in the other spectrum, fully the other side, who are always going to be negative and they'll never support whatever you do because they don't like change. They don't want any, they don't want that. You can only keep them informed, but it's very hard to pull them into the mix. And then you are all the people in the middle. And these people in the middle could either fall into the negative camp or fall into the positive camp. And it's how you engage with them, uh, which will really make the difference. And that's the 70 percentile sitting in the middle. And so change management uh, requires you to um, engage those people as heavily as you can with information that's relevant to them with uh, briefing with relevance of you know their day-to-day and how that affects them and the positives of that um, you get them involved in making decisions that actually uh, affect their they themselves tell you the spec or the brief uh, of the final and this was just to change offices from one location to another with you know uh, different types of desks I mean we went from uh, these kind of jelly bean shaped three people module desks into these flat desks and you know sit stand desks and stuff and I was like well Surely that's a good thing. Why do I have to train anybody? And they're like, well, because some people will go, well, that's too difficult. I don't want to press this button. And, you know, why is the desk always changing? And why am I going to a desk which is not always mine permanently? There's a lot of, you know, I guess, getting used to that. So it, it's a change management process. And, and that was, um, you know, before we even moved buildings, we had a year of that, even letting people select the type of chairs that they might move into. So we go roll that into facilities management and you say, you've got people who are now, you know, have literally been doing what they've been doing potentially for 20 years. Um, are they in that, you know, negative camp? Are they in the positive camp? Are the, is it the young people in the positive camp? Is it hard to recruit young facilities managers because it's, you know, a job which traditionally was something evolved from someone who was probably working on the building as a contractor almost into a role where they became the most knowledgeable person because they were fixing constantly fixing all these different bits of equipment to now this kind of tragic thing that we understand as facility manager or are they white collar educated people who've come out with degrees in mechanical engineering or controls or, or electric, electrical engineering which means that they actually see a real future in i guess machine learning using cognitive thinking and making decisions that actually inform you know much bigger changes using this software so all of that has to come into peace all we can do is assessing our team and we've got a mixed breath of all of those people, uh, is that we engage them early on with what we're specifying and why. We make sure that what we're doing, they've at at least cast their eye over and made sure that what we're offering them as a tool is something that they see value of. And even if we're going to do it anyway, we make sure that they're part of that process of the implementation. And so they can at least add little bits of where the relevance is. Um, and, And then we've done a lot of training post uh, a year before handover of the building, where there's a lot of handover training of using the equipment, playing with it. You can't break it, just play with it. You can't break it, just play with it. Um, all the way through into now you're using it. Um, have you tried using that tool? You know, have you constantly checking in? Are you using that tool for that? Or what are you doing differently? Are you using the old tool? Are you using the old way where you look for a CD with uh, a copy of the file? Oh, there, there's my information. Or have you used a tool to do it? If you've got a problem, did you check whether that particular device had flagged a problem, maybe in a part of the dashboard that isn't apparent. Ah, do we need to bring that to the front of the dashboard? Or do you need to check more things? Does your workflow need to change? And that's a really, it's just a slow process of education, um, engagement. Some people don't like it. Some people will leave the business. Some people will feel threatened. Um, 
there is no, even with our smartest building in terms of technology enablement, um, we didn't lose any staff. We didn't replace any staff because of it. Uh, I think that in many ways has shown a lot of the, the, the FMs that it's about them getting the best and making their life easier, not about replacing them. Maybe in many years to come, there'll be this ability to have less people do more, um, but we're definitely not there yet. Um, and we definitely have a lot of team members who are super important in managing our buildings, or operating our buildings that never get thanked. They're the ones who get blamed if things don't work, but never get thanked when things go well. Um, they're the ones that we're just spending more time now, especially at the back end of projects to engage with. And then I guess the new developments have given us the benefit of seeing that engagement with the same team members, um, seeing their use cases, and then bringing that back into existing buildings so they can be the advocates to their own peers in other buildings rather than, you know, oh, well, what does a development guy know about running a building? You know, right. I, the only reason I know so much about running a building is because I've got into the, 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 the nuts and bolts and spent time with the guys walking through plant rooms, understanding their issues, both early days and all the way through to now. And, you know, that's really important with that change management piece is empathy. Absolutely. <laughs> everyone's, got a, everyone's got a tough job. <laughs> Absolutely. How, have you guys looked at or have you done or set up with analytics across that many sites, a centralized operations center? Yeah, we're pulling that together now. Um, so that will require a number of buildings to go online with uh, live data streaming to a certain place. Uh, and then we're yet to, I guess, select uh, what that dashboard might look like. I think there are a number of providers um, who are offering that. I think Willow, that you know of, is one of those who is, who's offering um, almost a portfolio-based dashboard for multiple buildings. And we're definitely considering that as well as others to ensure that we've got what we want. Are they able to manipulate it and, and change it so it represents the information we need? Uh, or is it sort of you know, a static dashboard? Um, are there other providers who are able to do that? And are they able to get the data? Or do they need us to have already housed the data? And then they pull it from a central place. So there's a few questions there, but we don't have a centralized, you know, it'd be lovely to have that sort of uh, mission control yeah. uh, NASA center where everything pulls into one. Um, but we don't have that. That'd be pretty cool, actually. I, um, I look forward to that day with all those screens and all the information and be able to just walk the, the board members through and everyone goes, oh, look how run. There's no red lines. There's no red dots. Everything's perfect. <laughs> Everything's uh, I, saw that, perfect. I saw that at Microsoft's um, uh, Rock, they call it, the, the Real Estate Operations Center at Seattle. So at, um, even Microsoft took us into their CCC, their command control center for um, all of the Azure cloud stuff and that huge NASA style window mm -hmm. of information, um, you know, is, is just amazing. But, you know, we're, we're away, from, away from that. And there's a lot of money invested, investment required to get to that point. Probably more importantly, as long as we have a consistent dashboard for each of the operators in their building, that would be our step yeah. one before we brought it into a central place where we could run it all in. Totally. Reality is at the moment when people have a problem, it's usually a, technical problem and you needed someone on site do we want to wait for a centralized body to drive out there maybe that's fine if you're microsoft campus and everybody's in one place you can just drive to the building and you're good to go uh, but not so easy if you're it's in a different city um right. you know you, you, we're, we're not we're just definitely not there yet totally um, let's circle back on to, to new buildings so teaching this course right now that i told you about before we hit record and the, I'm getting so many questions um, around new buildings asking about how 
you know, there's a kind of this movement towards Division 25 and there being a master systems integrator, um, at least in the mm. U.S., and having mm. someone be responsible for bridging all of the silos, uh, mm. technology silos yep. Yep. for a new building. And yep. what I've been asking, getting a lot of questions around is, okay, well, what if that role is not in place? What if it doesn't have teeth? What if the owner doesn't understand it? What if the developer isn't like taking certain responsibilities here and there? And what yep. I'm getting at is like, yes, we might have that spec, but is it well written? Is it mature enough? Is everyone yep. buying into that role? Um, and so I wanted to ask you, like, after you built these buildings, mm. what are like the keys to building a smart building, I guess? Uh, and mm. what have you learned? Very rambling um, question. No, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question, James. And there's probably different threads of that. Um, so in terms of, say, a community, there, there's an argument to say that we need a bunch of standards, maybe a half a dozen standards that everybody does. Um, and, and that might be about open data protocols, that might be around um, integrated networks, it might be around data that, that is then stored somewhere. Um, and everyone agrees that, you know, when we go and produce a new building, that's what we all should do. But the reality is everybody's looking for either their edge or every advisor is trying to make sure that they have a uh, smart building advisor needs to make money somewhere. And if that is a standard document that everyone can just roll off the shelf as if it's a, a template, then there's, there's a lot of people who aren't going to get, you know, the nuances of what they want. Um, and maybe you'll always get nuances, but, you know, competitive advantage, people will hold back some of the information. So, so as much as I'd love to think that community will come together, and I think it does at a technical level, but at an investment level, Majority of my peers, you know, don't really sit there and dive into the detail of smart buildings beyond a couple of broad statements. Like I, I was thinking if you would ask me the question, what do you define as a smart building? I'd say to you, James, I, I don't. I don't have a single one liner, 25 words or less elevator pitch about what a smart building is. What I do have is I say every building is going to be different and what value are you trying to get out of it? Then I'll tell you what the smart building looks like. I can't tell you what it is. I don't. It's, is it is it to do with tenants and engagement? Is it to do with um, investment metrics? Is it to do with sustainability? Is it to do with? So it is all of those. But I, I don't really want to come up with a, a nice little one liner on what smart building is. Um, I, I want to say what's the value for that that business. Uh, in terms of what I've learned, I guess you need a champion at the developer investor side. Someone is making decisions which cost money. And someone has to be able to find that money every time you make one of these decisions that is different, it changes something that costs mm. something. If you don't have a champion from the client side who actually takes ownership of that decision-making process, understands enough about the question you're asking, you know, um, you will in, you would generally fail because a, a client, a, a consultant or an advisor who is, or a vendor is only gonna do what they know or think is the question. If you're a vendor or consultant, I would encourage you, if you don't have a client who is, I guess, informed, is to keep asking that question. Every time you're about to do something, ask the client, is this valuable? This is why we think it's valuable. Is there anyone in your business we need to talk to who may agree or disagree with the value of this? Is it an operations person? Is it a property person? Is it an investment person? Is it you know, someone in leasing? If you don't have a client who is the arbiter of all of that information, you need to ask that question. You need to keep asking that question. You need to be proactive. You can't just 
wheel out the last version of what worked and slap it onto the next client. And that is the biggest, that is the, the as, as an ex-consultant, the best consultants are the ones who actually proactively ask the client questions to ensure that they're giving the value that the client needs, even if the client doesn't know they needed it. Um, and you will, you will probably find for many years, you won't have these champions. Well, what, what I'm finding is that the community is now made up of a lot of smart building, um, smart building leaders in a business. But they're usually a team of one or two. Yeah. Yeah. So as a, as a team of one or two, they just don't, um, they don't have the bandwidth to work across everything, to, to come up with everything. So that's still good. But per project, you need a champion. The client usually needs to allocate a champion, whether it's a development person, whether it's a project manager or someone. That champion needs to know a little enough, enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be, you know, to make really bad decisions. And then they can guide and curate and facilitate the, the discussion. But that champion needs to be there. And if you can't get it from the client team, then you have to hire it. Hmm. You need an advisor who's that champion all the way through. And they need to sit all the way through the construction operation and handover. If they stop off at any one of those points, the person who had the vision and worked with a client with the vision doesn't have that all the way through to the other side. Um, and and that, that becomes a problem in itself. Totally. I love that answer. I totally agree. So that smart building champion doesn't need to be like the most technical expert on every silo, every no. building system, every technology, right? Actually um, not. So how, how do you play that role, I guess, and still enforce things like, just maybe use a data model as an example. At the end of the building, you want a common data model across all of the different devices you've you've mentioned and different software systems, right? So what's your strategy for sort of making sure at the end that that data model's there when the champion doesn't necessarily need to understand ontologies, mm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we need the champion to understand ontologies, then we have a, a inherent lack of scalability in just the, the whole smart building concept. Yeah, it's, um, again, I guess the, you're right. The champion needs to just know enough to ask the right questions and facilitate the, the, the team like a, like a conductor. They're not there playing the, the strings or, 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 play, or playing any of the instruments. They are actually just conducting all of that. So they need to have an overview. Um, there is always going to be a place for um, probably a smart building advisor, no differently than we have an ESD uh, advisor hmm. who actually runs the ruler over sustainability questions during design all the way through to certifications at the back end. Okay. And arguably that's what you're looking for is a self audit certification by that smart building advisor of what you've produced. So what you started with, what your roadmap was, what your goals were, hmm. and then they need to check that that's what actually is delivered. That needs to be written into the procurement of the builder. And that needs to be written into the builder's procurement of its subcontractors. Because remembering that builders don't build the HVAC system that's done by a subcontractor who installs the HVAC system. Right. And that, HVAC person with the controls person with all these other people, someone needs to audit what they're doing. Um, ideally, the best way is to do it via technology. So in one of our implementations, um, the tool we, the, the company we use and the tool that they use had a way of checking that all the data was entered in, in the right fields, in the right format. It wasn't flawless because we had a few uh, subcontractors game the system. They worked out how you could put in random zeros and A's and B's and you could 
self-populate you could just upload the same pdf every time and it wouldn't know the computer would just go it's assuming it's assumed you'd put the right information in the right place um <laughs> but let's let's let that was that was more the exception rather than the rule um you need an audit trail at the end so you know i'm never going to look at ten thousand points let alone hundred thousand points of data that make sure someone's put in the right information in the right place so so you do need some sort of system that can do that for you not a person uh, and then on the other side of the specifications and the right level and quality we are reliant on these communities building these these specifications so when we were using our kobe schema haystack was still in its na- uh, nascence um, and then brick came along brick wasn't even around when we we, we started it now we've got the the digital twin uh, data language dtdl stuff that that, that that again is is creating different typologies and ontologies in the way this stuff is structured look I'd, I'd, i i wouldn't even know the definition of ontology if you hadn't written it on one of your posts um <laughs> but you're right i don't want to know about that i just want to know that the information we get will do the workflow or the insight that we want um, yeah. and then i'm leaving it to the experts the consultants etc to create or use those templates to then uh, engage with uh, performance specifications to get procurement done in the way we want. And then someone has to audit it. And I, that's why I still think it's a champion. They need to pull the right people in. You've got to do a peer review. Uh, um, no differently than, I guess, tuning your building. Yeah. You know, the, the most interesting thing for someone like me to see at the end of a job is that everything that was intended to be designed and was handed over, often when tuned, it's not tuned. You yeah. know, the builder doesn't have time. He doesn't even have the people in the building to be able to tune it. So that year after, the two years after, that when the building's been tuned and final tuning slash commissioning is done, you know, and optimization is done, there's, there's, there's a couple of years post-PC. Um, and so, you know, that's why you still need that champion to be around to make sure that the right information is being used the way it was intended, um, et cetera. So finding that right champion, um, and maybe it is a consultant because it needs to have a, a level of knowledge as well. Yeah. That person has a level of knowledge. Yeah. And that's, that's certainly everything you've just said, the two different types of champions, essentially, right? The internal that has uh, access to decision-making power and funding. Sponsor. And then that would probably be more the sponsor. Yeah. 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 But there's two levels there. I think that I've been sort of preaching about in my course that Mm. um, I've seen so many projects kind of die on the vine without one of those two roles uh, because the old ways of our industry kind of creep in unless those two people are there to kind of <laughs> uh, root things out. Yeah. It's, so. it's all, it's tap, tap, nudge, nudge, and just keep, keep it on track. Otherwise yeah. it just goes off on, on, on one direction. And, you know, someone who has an idea just goes off and does what they want rather right. than necessarily what the client needs. Yeah. Totally. Let's talk about IB index. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, sure. What is it? Um, so, so the, the IB index sort of, I guess, idea was formulated back in probably around 2017. Um, it, it came out of a few different streams. And uh, from, from my side, it, as, as a co-founder of the IB or the International Intelligent Buildings Organization, was really to, to find, I guess, a better way of documenting all of the decisions we needed to make around choosing um, the smart building technologies or producing a, a smart building. We started calling it intelligent buildings because smart had its own connotations. Uh, smart was almost synonymous with shiny and new mm. rather than, you know, value, uh, proven value. And um, it, in, my, in my side, I started, you know, as you can imagine, 
coming through the space and being queried around what technologies to use, I just had a huge hit list of uh, new technologies. I tried to line it up with who was providing that technology. Was there always three providers? Uh, and what was I trying to solve with that technology? Was I trying to do uh, increased value for the building uh, through tenant engagement, through uh, tenant attraction? Was it a sustainable goal that I was trying to tick? Uh, was it security? Was it health benefits and the like? Uh, and then I, I was also trying to marry up this kind of huge list of technologies with uh, the maturity of the player in the market because... Uh, am I looking at something that will disappear and won't even be relevant in five years? Or am I talking about a critical system where, say, an IoT sensor on, on a chiller, now the chiller still has to work, irrespective of whether I'm collecting all that data, the chiller still has to work. Otherwise, yeah. I have no air conditioning in my building. So I had my version of this list. And as I guess my thinking evolved, and I started working with uh, one of the universities here, the University of Technology of Sydney, um, they were also doing some thinking around smart building strategies. They'd done a lot of work around digital twins and how that had evolved in the industrial market into you know, our market. And we came together and we pulled together a, um, and we got some funding to pull together um, the IB index, Intelligent Buildings Index. You know, it, it's been thrown out there as, you know, is it a certification? Is it an open standard? Uh, you know, is what is it? But ultimately, it's broken into three pillars of what we think really constitutes how you come up with a smart building and a smart building strategy. The first part is related to project lifecycle. Um, and it's all around project delivery, writing the right specs, having the right roadmap, blueprint, process map, um, decisions around you know, data, data typologies and the like, data uh, structures. Um, the second part is around the devices and the equipment and, and what they are trying to achieve, lighting, HVAC, uh, waste, water, um, security, etc. And then the last part is, we call it controls, monitoring and management, arguably one of the most important, because all of that information, all of the equipment in isolation, and we've talked about before just now, uh, is, is useless unless you can actually draw from it insights. And in many ways, it's not just about point solution insights. It's about integrated insights across all of these uh, all of these different devices. Hmm. And so we break it into those three outcome pillars, uh, input pillars, sorry. And then on the outcomes, rather than a binary yes, no, do you have it or don't you have it, we've actually graded that into fifteen um, subcategories of uh, benefits to financial benefits to. Um, environmental and benefits to social behavior, which is the triple bottom line. Uh, and then we grade it into good, better, or best. So rather than giving it a very binary, uh, this is worth one point if you have it, it's worth zero points if you don't. Uh, we actually feel that there are different levels of technology enablement. Um, you know, let's say for a light switch, do you have a light switch turning on and off? Well, that's a zero in terms of smart buildings, but do you have something with an extinction sensor that actually, or extension switch that turns off after a certain time? Do you have something with a sensor that turns off if there's no one in it after a certain time? And then do you have that in terms of um, also includes daylight harvesting so that it's picking up external sunlight. So then if you have a daytime, uh, even if you want the lights on, you may not need it at the same intensity. All of those will have benefits around uh, cost e efficiency, operational cost, but it'll also have sustainability benefits, health benefits, et cetera. Um, and by grading that good, better, or best across those 15 triple bottom line subsets, uh, we can get a lot of granularity across 200 questions now that we have. We have 200 capabilities across the project delivery, 
across the uh, device list or, or instrumentation devices applications, and then across the controls monitoring management. And then the, the user of the tool would literally respond to those questions as to how they perform or, mm -hmm. or their intended performance, if it's a decision-making tool at the front end of, of okay. a job. And then it would give them uh, their, their performance against a theoretical maximum if you wanted to put the full tech stack in, as well as a performance, or you could look at it in terms of, I actually wanna do better in how I engage with um, uh, my tenants, or okay. I wanna do better in terms of healthiness of the building, or I wanna do better in terms of sustainability outcomes for uh, use of renewables or self-generation of energy or, or the like. And then you can filter the information back to work out where you performed in the relevant categories, and then you can increase those that thus building your roadmap. By the time you've finished it the first time, you've now basically built a roadmap of what you want to produce uh, and what value you're going to get at the end. Um, and then you can always use it as an auditing tool at the end to make sure that's what you've implemented. Or if you haven't, you can delete items where you have maybe procured it poorly, the builder's not going to install it, or maybe the costs weren't there later on. Um, and then you can go back and then re-audit the tool. Um, we, we feel that this is going to be just a really complementary tool to smart building advisors. Yeah, to consultants okay. who actually talk about this. And in many ways, if you've got a, a team who can actually just populate it themselves, they can actually work out the decisions they want to make at the start of any uh, hmm. project, whether it's a new build or whether it's a CapEx spend on existing building. And that's basically the outline of the IB index. You know, there's, there, there are other tools out there where others are building it, uh, but the majority of those are very heuristic about trying to get you a gold or platinum rating, yeah. um, which is great. As a benchmarking tool, you want to know how you stack up against other buildings, but the number of integrated decisions across, and like I said, the reason I don't define smart buildings as one lovely term is it, it, it is different for every building and it's different for every owner. Um, and it's never gonna be comparable your building to another building. There is granularity that you need to get into. So, you know, my gold is gonna look completely different than your gold. Totally. Um, and a heuristic simplification of that is great if you don't want to understand the information, but I think the majority of people playing in the space need to make, because there's too many costs. It's not as simple as the sustainability question with a few costs. There are significant costs that could go in and then you'll get no value out of it at the end. You'll put all this technology in and no one will use it. Um, so the IB index is there to help. And we're just working through that. We had pre-funding from a number of startups, uh, Microsoft, helped us significantly with funding at the kickoff of the main program. We did a lot of work on, on, on their campus, um, working with them, Willow, my company that I work for, Investor, um, and then the universities as well. And we're slowly just trying to get to the point where we've got a tool that we can just let people play with and then, and then kind of go from there. Cool. So it's still in development. No one can go use it right now, even no, if it's just yeah, like exactly. a spreadsheet. Yeah, so it is. It's, it's exactly that. It's in a very detailed spreadsheet with lots of pivot <laughs> tables and filters at the moment. Okay. Um, and so it's it's a database of information that's been populated um, okay. um, and, and lots of meta tagging, you can say, uh, in the background to uh, allow you to filter the information to d different needs, whether it's a property manager or a vendor or a um, facilities or a manager. But at the moment, it's not something that we've released out. We're trying to build up um, we're trying to build the application tool so that people can start playing with it and really see the value of it. Um, we've got a couple of proof of concepts with a couple of owners who've engaged us to come on board and actually 
trial it on their building. It's all, most of those are, you know, confidential, uh, but they're, they're interested in seeing whether they arguably performed as well as they were intending. Okay, um, cool. And then is this something that they will continue to use as their own internal benchmark against standards for their next development or their next capital works upgrade, or even whether they're buying a building and whether what's been sold to is of value and will stack up in future valuation terms or, or you know, uh, investment sort of uh, value of the actual asset. It sounds really unique because it's not like, I mean, I grew up in the lead world where you could kind of install mm. a bike rack and game the system a little bit. Yep. So it seems that's different a, than that. That's what you were approach. talking about, bike racks. I get it now. You, you, you yeah. mentioned bike racks. I wasn't sure where you are going with that, but yeah. Yep. Well, it's like the famed thing. It's like an infamous thing. Infamous is a better word where the developer needs to get one more point. So they're just like, oh, spend, you know, $750 and throw in a bike rack, a bike rack. no one's going to use. Um, anyway, uh, no disrespect mm, to lead. Mm. I, I love lead, but it sounds like a different approach. It also sounds like a different approach than you described it a little bit. I, I've looked at all of the rating systems out there and there's kind of a premise that's basically like there is one definition. And what you're saying is it yeah. depends on the use cases that you're trying to enable and you can yeah. judge against those use cases um, that's based right. on what you're that's trying right. to accomplish. Yeah, you, you need to be able to, you, you said it better than me, James, I should get you to, to, to write the copy for it. But um, that's exactly what the difference is. If you believe that there is an answer to the ultimate um, Uber tech stack smart building, and you always compare yourself to that. Well, you're going to be out of date before you even deliver the building because it takes years to deliver a building and that keeps on moving. What you want to do is measure yourself against what you're aiming to, to, to achieve and a more holistic idea of the value. Um, and then you want to constantly challenge yourself to make small upgrades. You know, I, if, if someone were to ask me some of the core elements, I, I think I've already told you that an integrated network, some sort of you know, open data protocol, those are the kind of the core things, but I can say those and they're, they're nice and sort of high level and then someone has to go and solve it. But in terms of implementing actual technologies at that granular level, you need to be able to check constantly whether they are valuable, what's the next valuable thing? How am I gonna upgrade the building? Where am I gonna deliver the best bang for my buck? And it is always money driven, even if um, when doing lead and we do a lot of green star here, even if we greenwash it, to find the cheapest way of getting to that point. You know, um, there's an argument to say, as long as you're doing it, it's good. Your bike rack, single bike rack doesn't sound great, but uh, let's just say it's better than not having a bike rack. But uh, yeah, we, we definitely want to steer away from a singular value chain because every owner is going to have a different value chain and it's always going to cost money. So if, if finance isn't one of the value chains that you actually consider, how are you supposed to get this across the line? You know, how, how are you supposed to convince the board or the investors to spend money? Why is it so difficult to get some of the existing buildings to upgrade to sustainable standards? Because there's, a, there's an existing uh, income stream and no one's going to spend that money because there is no, you know, oh, we'll get better tenants and we need to upgrade this unless you have a portfolio strategy and someone's actually monetarily incentivizing you to do it or de-incentivizing you not to do it, then, um, you know, you're not going to do it for all the goodwill in the world, you're not going to do it. So money will still drive the decision, but we need to align that properly with the other value chains of the triple bottom line so that we understand how they're all benefited. Totally. I love that. I had a bunch of questions around it, but you, you kind of answered them all. So um, I guess I'll just go with, with my final question for you. What are you excited about in 2021? 
um, it's nothing to do with technology. It's uh, it's all to do with uh, spending more time outside. Um, I, I haven't been snowboarding. I haven't been snowboarding for a while, and I'm jealous that you're able to go because I I can't travel to any of the places that I'd want to travel. So um, I haven't been on skis or snowboard for a number of years now, and I'm definitely feeling the bug. I'm watching a lot of Travis Rice videos on YouTube. <laughs> okay. uh, watching, but although I'll never be in Alaska doing the stuff he does. Um, you know, I, I think connecting with people, you know, as much as the team stuff has shown us we can do, I still feel we're a little bit too disconnected, you know, and, and in terms of in terms of work, we've got some great new buildings in our pipeline. Um, I guess I'm looking forward to more so seeing how we can really roll out our portfolio strategy hmm. um, and make some big changes. We're playing with AI and ML on a number of different fronts to see whether we can find insights in the data streams that we're collecting uh, across not just building data, but even corporate data to, to see whether we can do things better, whether we can find deltas, you know, that weren't otherwise obvious to us. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be years. You know, I might well be retired before we have significantly aligned and structured data that we really get those values. I might be wrong. Um, things move pretty quickly. But then again, as you said at the start, we are in the property industry and things seem to be moving very slowly. Um, I can't believe that 25 years ago, I was modeling three-dimensional structures. And 25 years later, people are still talking about whether there's value in coordinated 3D models and why would we spend the money doing BIM? Uh, that kind of blows my mind. You know, 25 years ago, if we were doing it already, why are we still talking about it? It should already be, everyone should be just doing it. But yeah, that's all. And I'm looking forward to catching up with you face-to-face, -face, James. I think this sounds like a snowball trip that the two yeah. of us need to have. Yeah, I'm already um, planning uh, planning a Nexus Summit. I think I talked about it a couple episodes ago. Uh, right. I say planning, it's an idea at this point. <laughs> Not planning at all, but I, I need some help planning it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there are a lot of Nexus Pro members that are snowboarders and there's a couple skiers. We'll let them come too. Um, so yeah, if you're wanting to come to the Nexus Ski Summit, you got to join the membership. <laughs> <Just gotta. laughs> Uh, so you, you can come for free so thanks thanks so much for coming on the show shen appreciate it no and thank you very much mate it's a really impressive work that you're doing with the newsletter and and the podcast and stuff so thank you as well yeah uh, it's great to have someone like you in the community really sort of leaning into it my pleasure all right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart buildings industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.